I'm your host, Jeff Dawson, for another episode of Dawson's Domain, where we cover the spectrum of life's pressing issues and events, from politics to relationships, sports to horror, alternative history to poetry, humor to baseball coaching, and everything in between. Dallas, Texas started off really sad and dreary as we had rain last night, a little bit this morning, but with the sun breaking out, it's, it's a little brighter, puts a little kick in your step, gives you a little better mood. If you want to call into the show, the number is 888-627-6008 or 323-744-4831. Well, let's see. Went to Dunstan's last night, which has become a Friday evening. I'm not going to call it a tradition, but it is good to get out and meet with friends. And the berries were there. Our waitresses, Tabitha and Stacy at Dunstan's off of Harry Hines and Regal Row. Excellent family atmosphere, good food, reasonably priced, good service. Isn't that what y'all want in a restaurant? And nobody bothers you, no foolishness. Now, unless some people show up that I know too well, Francis and Fletcher, but that's another story. It is, as Monty Python used to say, and now for something completely different. And yes, it was different. And I think I, my replies to them when they showed up was sit down, shut up, and don't say another word. And that pretty well summed it up. And in their altered state of mind, they just laughed at me. And it's like, okay, beatings will be dispensed at a later hour. But other than that, it's always a great place to go. You get to hang out. And Doug was there. We hadn't seen Doug in about three weeks. But these things happen. Life catches up. Things get in the way. And we have to regroup and move forward. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, if you want a good place to eat, Dunstan Steakhouse, two locations. One's on Lover's Lane. The other one is at Harry Hines and Regal Row. Baseball is back. And I know I've been torn with this ever since Manford decided to move the All-Star game to Colorado. Yeah, how's that working out now that we're all starting to look at voting laws? in different states and how they compare to what Georgia passed. And now they're starting to see that maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I don't remember Denver burning to the ground or having riots over the summer, but Atlanta did. And Atlanta's really trying to build back. And you talk about a shot in the arm. The uh, initial estimates that I looked up on what a all-star game brings is about 40 to 60 million. Well, they projected this one at a hundred million. I guess Atlanta didn't need a hundred million additional dollars pumped into their economy so they can regroup and try and build from all of the violence last summer. So let's move it to Denver. 
and I'm sure you've all seen the stats on the white population of Denver and Colorado versus that of Atlanta and Georgia. Yeah, talk about a backfire. And I'm going to come back to this because I really got pissed off this week because I try and keep sports and politics separate. I did a video on it last summer. You can see it on YouTube. Director 59, where I don't want sports and politics combined. Now, if you listen to the media, well, they want everything combined. They are just, they're squeezing the populace that you're not allowed to think for yourself. You have to go out and you've got to bring this up. No matter where you are, you can't get away from it, and you're stuck. Well, I'm not a subscriber to that, and I said it in the video. When I go to a ball game of any type, I don't care what party you voted for. I don't care what your sexual preference is. I don't give a damn about any of that stuff. The only thing I care about is those guys on the field performing. That's it. I want to see a game. That's what I paid for. I didn't pay to go to a political rally or listen to some obnoxious drunk start spouting ideology to me. And I sure the hell don't want to hear it from those clowns that call themselves announcers. I mean, this this madness got to stop somewhere. It's got to stop somewhere. Otherwise, we will just rip ourselves apart because we'll never get a break. We will never get a break from it we won't let it rest and it's like those old uh pressure cookers my mom had one i don't know if you're familiar with man these things were industrial grade they had rubber gaskets on them you locked them i remember she made chicken and dumplings with it and it had its own regulator on the top And when that regulator went off, and you better move that pot because it is hitting critical mass, and it's not going to be good. Well, that's kind of what we're in right now. And the media is not helping. I don't give a damn which station or which network you listen to. They're all feeding the flames of the position they want. When I do my YouTube videos, I try and give an unbiased opinion. Of course, something is going to come out in it that, well, you can tell he's a conservative, which I've never held back on. Because, not going to lie, that's kind of pointless. But I will look at an issue and try and give both sides and the effects of it. In fact, I was... Before, while I was preparing for this show, I got to thinking about this reparations, and I'm going to write an article on that, and I will post it on my blog, LDDJEnterprises.com, about reparations. And I got to thinking, when else did we hear that word? But I don't want to get into that, because that's a subject all to itself. I want to get back to baseball and the Rangers. Yeah, they go down to Tampa, and they look great. 
I don't remember the last time the Rangers swept a team. It wasn't in the shortened bastardized season of 2020. And I'd have to go back to see, I think they might've done it once in uh, 2019, but it'd been so long. It's like they won a, they not only won a series, they swept a team on the road. Hallelujah. What more could you ask for? And then they come home and they play the Orioles and well, that didn't turn out too good. They had a chance though. This is something we hadn't seen in a while in the bottom of the ninth, They had two on a home run or a base hit gets them either tied or two runs down one run down. It didn't happen, but it was exciting to watch for a change. It just wasn't, okay, here we go again. Here we go again. Now, and I understand Fulton knew which I, I don't know if he has a mental issue or what, but he is so prone to the home run right now that it's like, okay, he's starting. Give the opposition two scores because you know it's coming and it's going to come fast and it does he'll look good for the first two innings or so and then boop, there goes one boop, there goes another one it's like damn it not again not again but the offense has been looked really good against tampa didn't look that bad last night Defensively, I'm seeing what I thought we'd see. But what is starting to evolve, which has been my biggest worry, is the starting rotation. Because I'm still not sure exactly who they're going to put out there and why, but Dunning is looking good. Fulton Newich, when he doesn't lose it, he's okay. Uh, what is it? Asiahara, the ja- I believe he's Japanese. He's starting to look better. Allard is starting to find his groove in the bullpen. I guess they've given up on him as a starter. But overall, it's not looking that bad. I know it's early. I know they're still under 500, but hopefully as this season progresses and they get LeClerc back and they get Calhoun back, which he's going to have a hard time trying to get a spot because this kid Garcia that we picked up from the Cardinals last year, he's showing he can take since you choose place in right field without a problem in the field and at the bat, he's looking good. So there is a lot of hope, but this, this foolishness behind the plate with Heim and Trevino, that just needs to stop. Heim, you're the backup. Woodward, stop this crap. And if Chris Davis or John Daniels are the ones that tell you to keep giving them a chance, the, the, uh, stop the foolishness. It's over. Trevino's the man. He gets in there. He gets the clutch hit. And defensively, he is so much better. So I don't know why we keep going with this experiment. I understand Guzman. And uh, I believe it's Lowe that are competing for first base because Guzman's still struggling at the plate. But Guzman defensively is better. 
So, yeah, that's kind of a toss-up, but uh, sooner or later, you got to make a decision. Third base, I mean, they've got Culberson, and I forgot who the other one is that's competing for it. That seems to be kind of a oops position right now. The outfield, that's solid. White, Dahl, Garcia. Uh, who else have they put out there? They traded Heineman, and that really upset me because he had potential. He really had potential because they got him from the Rays in the Solak trade. And, well, Nick Solak, he's, yeah, his, his batting is up and down, but it, it does happen. Defensively, he's solid. So the Rangers are looking good. Also, on the baseball front, I have to give a shout-out to a kid who I've been following for at least nine years. I started a Facebook site, uh, Cadillac Baseball Hitters Association, and a couple of moms would send in videos of their son's pitching, and I would give them tips on what I saw and what I thought would make their delivery smoother. And this one kid, if his mom talked to him, I don't know. I don't know if she passed any of that on to her son or to the coaches. But watching this kid develop from high school to college to a professional baseball player has just been fantastic. The boy's name is Connor Brogdon. He's 26 years old. He is a reliever for the Philadelphia Phillies. This is his, he did get the pitch last year a little bit, but you know, we can all put the asterisk by the 2020 season and just kick it down the road. And he got three runs scored on him. This year, he's 4-0. His ERA this year is 0.00. Now, in the grand scheme, it's down to 2.5. It's coming down. But the Phillies have found a gem. He was a 10th round draft pick. He spent three years in the minors. And I got to watch him pitch in the minors. And it's like, man, this kid's got the form. He's smooth. He's fluid. He's not quite like Nolan Ryan or Tom Seaver or Jerry Koonsman or Palmer or any of the greats of the 70s, but his he's smooth. He's not rushed. He's composed. He got himself in a real jam against the Mets like th- four nights ago. Didn't fall apart. Didn't crack. Got the next three outs. Mets had two on. Nobody scored. But when I watched the clips, you could just see it. He didn't worry. I think he... He hit one or two batters and, or hit one and walked one and got, you know, he got in a jam. Well, we see this from young talent and then they kind of lose their confidence. They change their delivery and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Not with Connor. He shook it off. He got a new ball and he did what he had to do. 
He got the outs. And in the end, I believe they lost that game because he pitched an inning, if I'm not mistaken. And another reliever came in and they messed got another run. But watching him has been absolutely wonderful because as a coach and an umpire and someone who's been involved with baseball since I finally got glasses when I was 10 year old so I could see what the hell I was doing. That was a real help. No wonder I'd stood up there when I was nine years old and they threw the ball right over the plate. And I was like, huh, huh, huh? I got glasses and it opened up a whole new world. I could actually see that damn thing. So a big shout out to his mom, Stephanie and her husband, who I have a lot of respect for is a police officer. I believe it's Fresno, California. And they're so ready for him to retire and get out. But Connor couldn't have been blessed with better parents. And, you know, they got to go and see their son's debut in Philadelphia. How cool is that? And they were very proud, just jumping up and down and look what our son did. But it wasn't me, me, me. It was look what our son has accomplished. And when I coached, that is what I focused on. I didn't focus on the team winning or the team losing. I focused on the players learning the game and having fun. And that's why I wrote one of my books. Because what are the first three words, first three letters in the word fundamentals? F-U-N, fun. And in all of my years of playing and coaching and umpiring, that word has really kind of disappeared. Coaches just want the win, and they want it at any cost. And I've seen that cost. I can think of two players I watched in a tournament in Jinx, Oklahoma, back in 04 or 05. I watched their deliveries. I watched their motion. And I shook my head and said, these kids are in trouble. Well, one of them, I saw about two weeks later, he's in a cast. Why are you in a cast? I broke my arm in two places, throwing a curveball. I said, how'd that work out for you? The other kid, he had this ungodly delivery. And you could just see, sooner or later, the junction at the elbow is just going to pop out. He released the pitch. I heard the pop. He was done. What was he, 13, 14 years old? You're going to have to have Tommy John surgery because the coach has his head up his ass? There's no sense in that. None. And if I've got any coaches listening, teach your kids the fundamentals. The wins will come. But teach them the fundamentals, fundamentals and not just searching and chasing a W. You might get that W but at what cost? You know, look at, I used to do this. I would run all the injuries in the MLB at the start of the season and at the all-star game. 
Out of over 350 injuries, you know how many were pitchers? Half. You know how many injuries there were at the all-star break? About the same. And once again, it's still half of them are pitchers. And my question is why? You've got all these analytics. You've got all these tools. You've got all these cameras. But all they're wanting to do is increase velocity. They're not trying to increase the stamina or the longevity of the player. Anybody under, want to explain to me why that doesn't seem to be the priority? If I've got a solid pitcher, I'd like for him to be around for eight to maybe 10 years, not three to five. How about eight to 10? And that goes for the colleges and the high schools. And, and the numbers are there. But nobody asked that question. Why are half of those injured players pitchers? Oh, we'll just get some more. And I did some numbers on this years and years ago about how many pitchers there are to choose between all the minors and all the other leagues, and it's not that many. Not at the attrition rate we're seeing. Yeah, I grew up in a time where you only had three starters, then maybe four. And these guys were paying a hell of a lot less than they are today. But that was my shout out to Connor, and it was great. While we're talking about this, Valley Sports bought out Fox Sports Southwest and a whole lot of other deals. And they are a division of Sinclair Broadcasting. Well, this has kind of become a sore topic because about three weeks ago, we had an emergency broadcast come across. We had storms rolling through the area. And some were severe. And it has messed up our signal ever since. Now, at Dunstan's watching the game last night, I didn't notice that problem. But since I wasn't home to compare the signal they were receiving to the one that we get, you know, I can't tell if they've actually cleared this up. And I've sent them a message and I sent them a tweet because where we're at, we never had a problem with Fox Sports Southwest. Well, now we're having a problem with Bally. And it's like the signal is still somewhat scrambled, making it very difficult to watch a game. It's like watching TV. Those of us old enough to remember static and snow and putting aluminum foil on the rabbit ears of the antenna for your TV and standing in odd positions and twisting them around. In fact, they actually had one of those episodes on uh, Married with Children where they all had to take the fox stance and everyone in the house had a different position so the signal would come in i can remember doing that well we weren't in the satellite age then we are now so we shouldn't be having this hit and miss reception because they covered the rangers the stars and the mavericks we should be getting a clean signal and hopefully you folks will wake up 
listen to this and figure out what's going on because it would make life a lot easier and we could enjoy it so much more. So there you go. Now I skipped over what I usually start a show off with, but I got on baseball, so I got excited. I'm going to come back to it. I usually start off with a book review. It's never too late to go back. The book is called Descent into Darkness, Pearl Harbor. Now, why would that be an interesting story? For those of us that know our history, December 7th, 1941, launched us into World War II. And our ships that were at Pearl took a horrible beating. Just decimated our fleet. I think it was over the summer I ran across a YouTube documentary and it was the topic was the raising of the fleet which ships they could salvage which ships they couldn't and how they would go about the salvage effort itself now that's not something that the average Joe or Jill thinks about, is it? We went to war. We produced massive ships, more than the enemy, and we won World War II. But what happened to the ships at Pearl? This book is about the Navy divers and the civilian divers that were called out, and I mean, like on December 8th, they are making plans, not just putting out the fires, but taking stock of what's left of these ships and what can be done with them and how can they be brought back into surface. Now, when we think of Hawaii or the Pacific, we think about sparkling blue water, crystal clear. This is Pearl Harbor. You've got six battle wagons that have been bombed and torpedoed into oblivion. And anybody who looks at the pictures would swear on God's green earth, there is no way these ships are coming back. How wrong they were. Now, two of them were written off, Oklahoma and Arizona. But the book details the dangers because these guys basically worked in pitch darkness. They have to go through these ships that are upside down, are sitting sideways, have had complete sections obliterated. And the only way they can navigate through it is they've got a hold of some plans you've got divers up top acting as their guide and telling them where to go so as the diver in what 165 pounds of gear and those lead boots you have to you work your way by feel because you can't see anything because of all the oil in the sediment, everything that is still boiling from the harbor. These guys worked in pitch darkness. 
I cannot imagine doing that. I mean, the people from that era had more gumption and guile than I I can than I can imagine. This generation of people, there's no way they could pull this off. Because when you think about raising these ships, you got to go back and think of the technology back then. We just came up with radar that did identify the Japanese planes coming in from the northwest to hit Pearl, but they thought there were a group of B-17s coming out of Frisco. Yeah, that wasn't quite the case, was it? No. But the accounts of this book, and it's written by the diver. Uh, damn, I didn't write his name down. Well, that was my dumbass move. But it's called Descent into Darkness, Pearl Harbor. I highly recommend it. You you will just be amazed at what these men did to bring these ships back online and get them into the fight. Maryland, West Virginia, California, they came back. And as I said earlier, but uh, Oklahoma, she was the last because she had flipped over and now they had to flip her back. And how they turned that ship right side up alone is just an engineering marvel. But the the thing that you learn, and it's like my management book, Do Your Damn Job, of which I go into, nobody had the the one answer. Nobody said, I know more than you do because nobody knew anything of what they were going to find in these ships and the internal damage and what it was going to take to plug leaks. In fact, one guy, it was with the Oklahoma, they'd come up with an idea that they could take K-Pox and with the pumps running to pull the water out of the Oklahoma, they would just they would feel, and if they felt suction, then they'd take a K-Pock and let it go, and it'd suck in, and it'd seal it up. So the pumps were running the whole time. He got in a hole that was bigger than anyone could imagine, and it he got wedged. His arm got sucked in. And by the time they pulled him out and got him up top, his arm had swelled five times its original size, and they really thought he was going to lose it. With patience and rehab, he did not lose his arm. But the, the perils that these men, they, they were the unsung heroes that you don't hear about much. They sacrificed everything. They lost three men salvaging our ships of Pearl. It was a very dangerous duty. And they didn't complain about it because it's what they signed up to do. They knew the risks, but they also knew the risks of losing the war. So which side do you want to be on? Do you want to whimper and whine? Today's generation, that's all they seem to do. And that's all we seem to see on TV is they whimper and whine. And speaking of whining, 
I don't seldom get disturbed, but, you know, get your copy of Descent into Darkness and you will not be disappointed. Now, this whining. Now, I'm coming back to baseball. I can take a lot of guff from people. We all do. Everyday life, no big deal. But I do draw the line when it comes to some issues. And this one, I drew the line. I didn't get nasty about it, but I did draw the line. I am on a site on Facebook, the Dugout Forum. And obviously, what's it about? Baseball. And this guy posted an article. His name is Ed Berliner. And it didn't last long. I don't think it made it through the day before the administrators dropped it. Because, as I said earlier, he wanted to mix politics and sports. And I watched his video as he tried to give his boisterous, professional, expert opinion on the new Georgia law, voting law. And at the end of his video, he said, I dare anyone to tell me my facts are wrong. Well, guess what I did? Yep. I challenged him. And so I responded to his YouTube video. And just like that, your post is removed from the dugout forum. How shocking. Oh, no one would confuse you as a conservative. Your facts are wrong and half truths. I've read the bill. That was on 412. 2021. He posted this on 4521. And since I'm from Dallas, I'm just like, man, this is just another Dale Hansen. So that was my response to his video. Okay. I'd forgotten about it. I couldn't remember the guy's name. I guess I wouldn't have been a loss if I would have forgotten about it. On 412, I get a response in my message box. No worries. I enjoy uncovering racist old hacks like you. Pardon me, dried out, aging, racist old liars like you. I wanted to be specific. That's what that son of a bitch sent to me. Now you tell me in my response to him, and I took pictures of it, so I'm not making this crap up, where I am accused as a racist. And if you've listened to the show, I don't believe anyone has ever called that out to me. Now, a lot of people on the left have said that, especially during the heated presidential race, they said, and then I would just fire back and say, and are you a... Uh, godfather to any Mexican children? Of course, their answer is no. I am. I got more Mexican friends than you can shake stick at. You want me to start listing all my black friends who I give shout outs to? 
some bitch calls me a racist. But then he's one of these self-agonizing guys that just thinks, what, what, what is his stupid show called? The, the Man in the Arena. You know, man in the Cage is what it ought to be. I mean, he's just another boisterous blowhard. So, but I, I won't tolerate that. I have worked with every race in construction that you can shake a stick at. I am friends with most, not with all other white people. I don't like, does that make me a racist against white people? But this guy really pissed me off and he's supposed to be this Emmy award winning. How about son of a bitch, buddy? You call me a racist. You don't even know me. But then I went and looked at his podcast and just to see what his topics were. He says he's not a liberal. I'm looking at all of his topics and said, really? Okay. But when somebody calls me that and uh, yeah, it just put me over there. So I responded to him. You, sir, are the hack. What was the last line in your video? Prove me wrong or something like that. I challenge you. And this is the best you can come up with. One, you don't know me, but like the rest of the left-wing media sports reporters, which I use lightly, I have more black and Mexican friends than you can count. But hey, if you think writing to me makes you a bigger man, then it shows how small you are since you wouldn't have this debate on your video. And that was a really important thing. Here he says on his video, I'm going to get excursiated by a lot of people. I'm the only one that posted a damn comment. That's how few people listen to this pompous ass. And then I went back yesterday to look, Oh, my comments are gone. I wonder why the dislike I had is gone. I wonder why, but he wants to have a debate. And this is how he does it. He does it through messenger so that he can say, well, I took the high road. I don't know who the hell Jeff Dawson is. And he's just a babbling son of a bitch. And that's why I took pictures of it and saved it. For future reference, if you show your face on the dugout forum again, I will make sure your uninformed comments about myself will be shown to all because the dugout forum does not put up with this crap. And if he does, I'm just going to let it go because there's a lot of good people on there. There's probably 25% that I wouldn't drink coffee with, but the other 75%, they stick to the topic, to the issue at hand, and they don't mix politics. But people like this clown, they just can't leave it alone. All right. I will also add in. The debate should have been about the new Georgia law, but you choose to make this personal. Thank you for opening that door. And just for fun, when I have the time, think I'll write a letter to your employer so I may broaden their horizons and how you respond to those with a differing view. Again, thank you for responding to a post I'd all but forgotten about. I had. And then he comes back with, you offered no retort, save for a statement with no facts. I'm not a Democrat or left wing. Yeah, right. Please feel free to show my comments and contact my employer. Thank you for your entertainment. 
So then I told him I did a YouTube video and covered it on my radio show. <coughs> to prove it just like you need to prove I'm a racist. If I get around to it, I re if, if he works, if, if he's working for somebody, I really don't care. If that's what they want in their cage, then throw him a banana every once in a while. It'll be okay. But he came to me and called me a racist. Prove it. Huh. Ask the people I've worked with or worked for. Ask the Mexican, the Hispanic, the blacks, and the Asians that I've worked with or worked for. And they're going to tell you no. Because a long time ago, <clears throat> when I moved down to Dallas, being from Tulsa, I'd worked on road crews. They were white and black and female. There weren't any Mexicans in Tulsa yet. And if there were, I don't remember them. I know when I worked for Tulsa Paving and McMichael Asphalt, we didn't have any. So I moved down to Dallas. And that's what the crews are made up of. You find a white kid on a crew, good luck with that. <coughs> the asphalt crews back then were mainly black, which I always thought was interesting. I didn't care. I didn't care what race they were. We're all getting paid a wage to show up at seven, work till five thirty or six, go home and do it again tomorrow. Only thing I got upset about is if someone didn't do their job and I was responsible for them. I had more arguments with the white people than I did anybody else. <laughs> now figure that one out. I come down to Dallas. All the crews are Mexican. I didn't care. All I cared about was, are you doing your job? What are we doing here? That's all that mattered. That's it. And I cover that in my book, do your damn job. If you're hung up on race, go into work, go into business for yourself. Then you can figure out who you want to work for you, work for you and who you don't. And then maybe you'll be happy. It's doubtful, but maybe you'll be happy. But for this guy, this is what's wrong with America right here. This guy summed it up right there. He didn't agree with me and his way to acknowledge it was by calling me a racist. You son of a bitch. wonder if there's a defamation suit in there. No, because it wasn't public. And he would say, well, I really don't give a damn what he says. And I'm sure not promoting him. Not at all. But that's all it took was to say, I don't agree with you. I went through that Georgia bill and covered it from the first page to the last page. 
and left it up to the listeners to decide if it was racially motivated. I disagree with somebody and I'm immediately labeled a racist. What type of shit is that? Now, if you've got any thoughts on that, I'll give you the phone number again, 888-627-6008. That just went all over me. And I was saying earlier, when I came down to Dallas, I met a guy name of Isaac Hill. He's a black man. So what? He had a saw and seal company. And I got to know Ike. It was probably six months, maybe nine months. And there was some racial disturbance going on in Dallas. And I had to bring it up. Ike, tell me, what do you think about this racial unrest? And he said, Jeff, I'm going to tell you something. There's only two colors I'm interested in. Okay. You now have my attention. And what would those colors be? Gold and green and everything else is a bunch of crap. Those pretty prophetic and wise words. If you ask me gold and green and everything else is a bunch of crap. And he is right. Now, does that mean that all the races are going to sit around and sing Kumbaya and dance around the campfire with s'mores? No, that'd be like saying Japan and China are going to break bread. No, they're not because China's still mad as hell over the Nanking massacre and Japan is not about to apologize for it. Not today, not tomorrow, never. It's not going to happen. And poor Korea, they're just kind of stuck in the middle between those two guys. They don't like Koreans. You know, Turks and Armenians, you think they like each other? I know an Armenian. I know a Turk. And man, they've got different opinions about their countries and their history. racism, Iran and Iraq, they're Middle Eastern. You think they like each other? Uh, no, they had a 10-year civil war. And I could get into reparations, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to do that because I've got to think about the article and I've got to get it together and do it right. But yeah, the, the this really took me off that because I disagree with his boisterous, ridiculous take on the Georgia bill that I'm a racist, yet he's done nothing to talk about Denver in Colorado's voting laws or New York's. That is what's wrong with America today. You think you can throw that term racist at me and put me in a corner? You've got another thing coming to you, buddy. You say you want an Emmy. Well, why don't you stick that up your goat smelling ass? Cause that's where it belongs.
I don't mean to be harsh, but damn it. You cross the line when you put that tag on me. I have friends from across the spectrum. I have those that aren't friends from across the spectrum. But that doesn't make me a racist, you sorry son of a bitch. Okay. Joel Osteen would not be proud of me. Because he had a sermon on that, and you're supposed to let it go. But every once in a while, you just can't turn the other cheek. I'll do better at that. Okay, a little bit of politics. Fauci foolishness. Anybody see that exchange between him and Jim Jordan? All Jim wanted to know is what percentage will the all clear be sounded? You know what Fauci said? Nothing. Now, if we go back to the pandemic of 18 through 20, if history is correct, we should be on the tail end of this. Because Fauci spouted off that there are still 67,000 new cases a day. That's correct. I went back and looked at my stats and that proved out. But what about back in January when we had, how was it, the week ending 110 and there was 1.7 million new cases per week? That was 242,000 a day. Well, we've almost cut that by four. <clears throat> Jordan wants to know when will the CDC say it's all clear? And then Maxine Waters jumps in and starts blowing her big, irritating mouth along. I forgot who the chairman of that committee was. And they start answering for Fauci. And Jordan's like, uh, you're not the witness. I need to hear it from him. You two need to shut up. Oh, they couldn't. No. And one of them said, the chairman said, when 90% of the representatives are vaccinated, you can look up the clip. So by that, if 90% of the representatives are vaccinated, then that's the all clear. Well, where did he get his medical degree? But that's what he said. And what, it, what I heard was, well, once we're taken care of, everyone else is all right. Don't worry about it. It's supposed to be the other way around. Why didn't he say, when 90% of Americans are vaccinated, we're going to let it go? Because there's still places that are locked down. Not like it was this time last year. I mean, look at the MLB games, limited seating. 
look at the hockey games. I don't think they're having fans yet. And I don't watch the NBA, so I really don't give two shits. And I didn't watch any of the March Madness because it's basketball and I just don't care. But I don't think they had any attendance. So what is the number? It's you're never going to vaccinate 100% of everybody. All Jim wanted was a number. He didn't get that answer. And Fauci has been wrong most of the time through this. First, it's not going to be a problem. Go back and look it up. Back in February last year, he said it's not going to be a problem in the United States. And then it showed up at the United States. And he said, masks don't stop it. Masks aren't going to be helpful. Now we're up to, if you wear three, you might not catch it, but I'm not going to guarantee it. One's good. Two's better. Three's fine, but can't guarantee you won't catch it. This is supposed to be the head. I don't know what his title is anymore. I don't know if he works for the CDC or the World Health Organization. I really don't care. But when representatives have to start covering for an expert witness, what the hell does that tell you? Nepotism? Yeah. You see anybody come to Bill Barr's rescue when Nadler was pulling a Friesler on him in that hearing when Bill Barr finally went to the promised land to have a hearing and all they did was lambast and berate and insult him and he never was allowed to answer a question one. But they all asked, they all used their five minutes and just... It was, it was a kangaroo court. It reminded me of Friesler during Nazi Germany. And they were sentencing all the officers that were part of the July 20th bomb plot to kill Hitler. If you were the witness, you weren't allowed to speak. And that's exactly what I saw in that hearing. That was frightening that that could happen in our government. Okay. Oh, I, I'm not going to give Fauci any more coverage because, you know, how the hell can these people do their job when they're always in front of a camera on a show? Someone explain that to me. If I'm a project manager and I've been on some high end jobs that were very public and you, you were in the eye of the public and everybody knew what you were doing. If I would have had to give interviews every day for two hours, that's two hours I'm not getting my work done. And I was working 16 to 18 hours a day at that time. Well, that's two hours I just lost. So how am I going to make that time up? Well, I can't. It's gone. And now I'm behind the eight ball 
because problems have arisen that needed to be addressed, but I had to have my face in front of a camera explaining to people what the hell we were doing and why we were doing it five different times. I'm not getting my work done. I did one interview years ago. It lasted all of two minutes, and that was probably two minutes too long. Because the questions they ask are stupid. Why are you closing the road? So we can do the job. How about that for a novel idea? Well, doesn't that impact traffic? It's like, really? What the hell do you think? Why do you think we work at night? Because if we work during the day, it costs us $10,000 per lane to shut down. We don't want to work during the day. We have to work at night. Well, is it safe to work at night? It's a hell of a lot safer than working in the day. Because we can actually control the traffic and get them to slow down. And we're only having to deal with, we're dropping the volume of traffic by 90%. And by that time of night, when we start shutting down a lane at 10 o'clock, people, if they were in a rush, they realized they're late. And now they're going to settle down unless they're drunk and they're going to obey the signs that we put up. They're going to obey the lane closures and all of my men are going to go home tonight safe. I'm not going to have to scrape up a body off of 635 or 75, whereas during the day, it is a crapshoot. Any of you that have ever worked on a construction job out in traffic know what I'm talking about. You don't realize what 70 miles an hour is until you're standing there by a cone and some dumbass just wants to see how fast he can go and how close he can get to somebody's toes on a construction zone. Yes, that does happen. And yes, when we can get their license plate and notify the cops, we do turn them in because they are putting our lives in jeopardy. Okay. So I did one and that was enough. I was asked a few times, well, can you give updates on where you're at? All right, I'll give updates. But it's a be, it'll be a written update and you guys do it the way you want to. I don't have time for all this foolishness, but I would laugh. It was so funny when our office was at 75 and 635 and that big interchange would ice up. So here come all the news people, all these idiots setting up their cameras on church road crossover of 75 filming the vehicles trying to go up, up the interchange or coming down the interchange. And I'm looking at where they're set up. And if anybody comes around this curve and has their head squarely in their ass, they're going to take out the whole crew. And I did walk up to one of them and said, you know, you really are putting yourself in danger because nobody can see you until they come up over that hill. And if they lose control, they're going to take you out. So at least use your van to block yourselves. And they looked at me like I was the dumbest son of a bitch they'd ever seen. And I said, well, it's your life. I warned you, so carry on. And, of course, little 
there was a little blonde band like, okay i'm done with you i'm done with you you've been warned you're in a bad spot nobody can see you there's no sign warning people that there is a work crew up here which work i use that lightly with them but hey if you guys get hit it's all on you i just don't want you to get hit. I've worked out here for the last year and a half. I know how dangerous this area is. Well, it's messing with our shot. Oh, well, wah. Okay. If your life is worth less than this really exciting and exhilarating shot of cars going up this ramp and getting stuck because it's icy is hard hitting news. Have at it, idiots. Yeah, that's what I think about the news. It was so stupid. It's like, okay, you get hit, good luck. Not much else I can say about that. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about today is breast cancer. Really, it's cancer and relationships, which I have I have three books on the topic. Why did everything happen? Love's true second chance and living with breast cancer. And that brings up if you see the video of this radio broadcast, it's my company is LDDJ Enterprises Publishing. And now I got to go back to Dunstan's. I was chatting with Patty and Jerry and the topic came up. Well, what is LDDJ? What does it stand for? And I said, okay, it stands for Larry, dad, Debbie, and Jeff. The first three, Larry was my partner. He died from liver cancer. Dad needs no explanation. He died from cancer. And Debbie, and she died from cancer. And I am the survivor. L-D-D-J. That's what it stands for. When you get the diagnosis, with my partner, Larry, we were close. I really didn't think that merger would work, that partnership, because Larry and I had worked for the same company. We were shutting it down. <laughs> and Larry and I just had different opinions. We've all been there. I didn't have a choice. This company's shutting down. We're going through the horrendous SNL disaster, the collapse of Republic and Dallas, Penn Central and Oklahoma City. The, all the SNLs are cratering. It was ugly. There were no jobs. People were laying off. Nobody was hiring. Nobody needed some little pissant <clears throat> project manager estimator from a small company. So I had to start my own. And Larry called up and said, hey, I hear you're starting your own company. And I was like, well, yeah, I think we could really work together. And I was like, really? Okay. Sell me. I didn't think we could. 
No doubt about it. That's how many times we locked heads out in the field. He ran the field. I was in the office and they looked at me as an office boy. They didn't care that I'd poured concrete in the past or done any of that. I was just a stupid college office boy. It didn't matter if I actually came out and worked with them. I was still in the way, but you know, these things happen. So we sat down and talked and I said, okay, I think this will work. And it did until he got sick, but we never concentrated on that. He was diagnosed with colon cancer. We really didn't talk about it that much. He's still working. He goes to the hospital. He has the surgery and it's successful. And everything's great. Well, then he has a follow-up and the doctors tell him that he has liver cancer and it's inoperable. Now, this is a blow. Larry was one of the best men you would ever meet. I can never say enough good things about that man other than I wish I knew him better than I did, but I knew I loved him and I cared for him. And when he told me of the liver diagnosis, it's like, okay, what do we do? He goes, well, what do you want to do, Jeff? And I said, Larry, you can work as long as you want to, as long as you think you can show up and work, you're more than welcome to come and, and work. But the day that you can't, I won't stop paying you. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be where we are today. And I did. But our relationship wasn't defined by the cancer. It was defined by how we related to each other and how much we respected each other. And, and it was, Larry was one of those that you hear the horror stories about that they just withered away to nothing. Because once that cancer got a hold of him, it was horrible. He was in a hospital bed at his home. It was very sad to just watch this great man just wither away <clears throat> and die. That was very sad, but that didn't define our relationship. And I didn't realize how much it affected me until years later. I never really recovered from him, from losing him as a partner. He was just a damn good man. It was very sad. And that was in 1990 and 31 years later, it's still sad because he, he, he would give you the shirt off of his back. He wanted to help everybody and he was good to everybody. One of my fondest memories was when my dad came to town, I knew Larry was a baseball fan. And his son was a fan, so I got tickets, and all four of us went to the old Ranger Ballpark. 
not globe life or this mon- 1.1 billion monstrosity, the old Ranger Park, that when you stomped your feet, the whole thing shook like JFK Stadium. What a great time we had. You couldn't ask for anything better. Four men enjoying a cold beer, a dog, and a ball game. It didn't matter who won. It's that we spent that three hours together. What a great night. So I don't think about Larry and his passing. I think about Larry and what we did and what we shared. And then next on the list is dad. And as dad's disease progressed, because he wasn't having any chemo and any radiation, he's 84 years old. He's seen what those treatments do to his friends in the same age group. And he goes, I'm not going that way. That's, that's not a quality of life. Not doing it. Let it run its course. And I will live each day as I can. And that's what he did up until a week before he passed. But we didn't stop living. Now, there were some things I wanted him to do. I offered to take him out to the golf course because apparently they had done some renovations at La Fortune in Tulsa and just drive around. And he flat turned me down. He said no. And I got to thinking, Well, okay, that makes sense. Because if he can't enjoy the course, he sure the hell doesn't want to ride around thinking about what he can't do. So, okay, we let that go. No big deal. But he didn't stop living. We would, I'd try and get him to go walk once a day if he felt up to it, you know, walk down about four houses, turn around, come back to the house just to air them out. That's always what I would tell my kids. I'm going to take you all. It's time to air you all out. You know, dad needed that every once in a while. Sitting on the back porch was fine. But dad, you want to walk a little today? I'll walk with you. Yeah, he had to bundle up because he was always cold. No matter what the temperature, he was always cold. The cancer was eating on him. But we didn't stop. We didn't stop living. Knowing it's terminal. We didn't sit around and wait for that final day. I would ask dad what he wanted me to do. If there were some things he needed done around the house. Just so he could tell his son, this is what I need you to do. Of course, I did a lot of it on my own. Just because he doesn't need to know everything I'm doing. Kind of like in high school. I'll come back to that in a minute, but we continued to live. And that was really good because it kept his spirits up. It's not like the vultures were circling overhead and just waiting for that day. We didn't worry about that day. We worried about today. Didn't worry about tomorrow. We worried about today. It was the same thing with Larry. What are we going to do today? 
And when Larry couldn't come out to the sites anymore, I would stop by every day on my way home from work and we'd play a game of chess. And his girlfriend would be there. And then it just got to the point where he couldn't do that. But we still lived for the day as with my dad, which was really cool because when we would sit on the porch, I would ask him, you know, have you done everything you wanted to do in life? And he said, yep. Is there anything you regret not doing? He said, no, done everything I wanted to. And he had, he was a very diverse man. He performed in musicals for DuPont. He was in a barbershop quartet. They cut a record back in the forties or fifties. I've got a copy of that in storage. He performed at the church. He was in the choir. He, he and mom wound up traveling the world after he retired and started his own consulting firm. He went everywhere and did everything he wanted to do. And he was content with that. He had no regrets. And we're sitting on the porch one day. And just out of curiosity, I said, dad, I want you to tell me something. He goes, what? Of all the girls I dated and the one that I was married to, who was your favorite? And he didn't bat an eye and said, Debbie. That kind of surprised me. Debbie was your favorite? He goes, yeah. Well, why was she your favorite? He really didn't elaborate. He just said, I, I just really liked her. I said, so you liked her better than Vita who I was engaged to in college and she dropped me like a bad habit, which was the correct move at that time. And then my wife, Sharon, he said, yes. And then he had this look in his eye and it's like, what does he know that I don't? Because 30 years prior to this, and I have to bring up, Debbie and I haven't gotten back together yet. So this is three years before she and I reunite. And I was in an accident at a Wendy's with Debbie. And uh, if you want all the details, you have to get a copy of Love's True Second Chance. And let's just say I was in a compromised position and was not able to get out of my truck and view the damage. And I go over to my best friend's house and his father starts an inquisition on a person that I should know. And I don't know who he's talking about. And Mr. Palin goes, well, that's kind of funny because this guy seems to know you. And if it wasn't you, it must have been your twin because uh, he was about 17 years old driving a red pickup truck and backed into him. And I was like, oh, what the hell? It's like, oh, damn, I backed in to my best friend's father's co-worker. Okay. It's not going anywhere. But that look in my dad's eyes told me he knows something that I don't. And he looked at me and he goes, son, I know about you backing into uh, Mr. Paling's co-worker. And I was like, oh, shit. Are you kidding me? You, Dad, you've known about this all these years? And he goes, yep. 
and you waited till today to tell me that. And he goes, yeah, because I, Bill gave me his contact information and I wound up paying for his bumper, which was like $200 in 1977. That was still pretty pricey at, especially when the minimum wage is 215. But I could see a smile in my dad's eyes as we recounted a lot of these memories and the things that we had shared. But we didn't stop living. We didn't stop living until the day he passed. We knew the prognosis wasn't good. That's a given. And now we get to the D and that's Debbie and that's love's true second chance. That was the most wonderful seven months I've ever spent in my life. And I do it again in a heartbeat. I didn't realize, you know, we all had the puppy love and the hurt in high school, or most of us had that one love and thought it would never end. And then it did. And I mean, everything collapsed. Everything went to hell. We didn't know what to do. But with Debbie, I never got over her, even when I was married. That didn't cause my divorce, but Debbie was just one of those girls and you just don't forget about and I didn't and we would get back together but I knew walking into this where she was at because we get back together in January of 2009 and she'd had a mastectomy in May of 2008 she was finishing up her chemotherapy she still had the port in her chest and she was done with that but now she was onto the radiation part And as our relationship grew, obviously there's a lot of optimism that she's beat it until she gets an MRI in April and she hasn't beat it. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And she actually told me, I think two or three weeks before they did this, that she knew it was back. Well, she would know her body better than me. And yeah, it was back. And unless they really got this going, her chances of survival were zero. But even listening to the doctor telling her all the drugs she would take to fight it and then the drugs she would take to fight those drugs, that was going to be terrible. Uh, It's like, God, she's just now starting to eat and regain some of her weight and strength. And she's going to go back through this regime, the first round to kill her. She didn't have the strength and she still worked. She was a pharmacist, but so how do you deal with that? You know, love your life is going. Well, you live each day at a time and yes i worked in dallas so i would have to come back to work but instead of working seven days a week when we reunited 
I wound up working four days a week. I could do, I could get all my paperwork done, get the scheduling done, get materials ordered four days of the week. And then I could do everything remote over the phone. I could handle the issues over the phone because I had notified everybody of what was going on and what was more important to me. In fact, one of my bosses, he really pissed me off one day and uh, I just walked out of the meeting. I said, I don't need this shit. And he comes running out after me and goes, well, how's she doing? And I just looked at him and said, she's dying. How do you respond to that? And he couldn't. Well, if you need anything, I said, I got everything I need and I'm doing my job. You got anything else for me? No. And that was the last time I talked to him about that. Was that the right way to do it? Probably not in retrospect, but uh, it was at the moment, the only way to drive home that the message that her life and her care is a hell of a lot more important than this job. And it was. And I might have gotten down to where I was only working three days a week, but I was still getting my work done. But the point is, is we didn't stop living. She had two daughters. What are they supposed to do? Put their lives on hold? No. So I made it a point to spend more time with them because they needed the help. Debbie is losing her strength. I'm losing the love of my life, but they're losing a mother. Which is more important, them losing a mother. And since I'd lost two people to cancer, I could help work them through this. If you want to use that term, which really isn't fitting, or guide them through it, or let them know what's going, what's, how this is going on, what is affecting her, how she's going to react. But we still kept her as involved as possible. I remember on July 4th, I went out and bought some fireworks and I told Debbie what we were doing. I said, if you feel like it, please come downstairs and join us. And none, the three of us, there was no way this was happening. She's not, she just didn't have the strength. She made it and she fought it the whole way, but she wanted to be with her girls and me on her last 4th of July. And yeah, we even gave her a sparkler and it put a smile on her face, but I can guarantee you that because in 16 days, she wasn't, it would be her last day. She still found a little bit of excitement. She found something to motivate her to spend what little time she had left with us in a good way. We didn't focus on her being sick. We didn't focus on what was the inevitable. We focused on the day. That's what was important. And if you've gone through this, if you know someone who is about to go through this, you take it a day at a time. You live for that day. You can't make long range plans. You have to find what you can do today to fill their life and not let them think about what's coming down the track. In fact, 2009 is when the 
Star Trek movie with Christopher Pine came out. And we've already, we already know what's, what's going on inside of her. I knew I was going to go see the movie and I said, what do you think? She goes, oh yeah. Didn't think twice. And the girls, they were a little wishy-washy on it, but that's okay. We made that an outing. Going to Sonic was an outing. Driving around McAllister, Oklahoma, which is really not what you would call a metropolitan area, we discovered buildings and parks and things that, God, they had lived there, I forgot how many years, they didn't even know about. We found things to do, even if it was just going to a park and watching baseball games. Debbie just thought that was nuts at times, and I said, well, come on, we'd take the girls with us. It got our minds off of what she was battling with. We couldn't do it for her. All we could do is help her through it. Yeah, there's, you know, it's been, what, 12 years this year? Yeah, 12 years since she passed. Yeah, I still think about her about every day in the seven months that God allowed us to share. That doesn't mean it was easy. We had plenty of bumps in that short seven months to the point where I almost called it off. But that was part of the relationship and that's what made it stronger. But I was with her. I was with her girls. We were together. My youngest son would come down occasionally and we'd have a cookout. We did everything together. We did it as a family. And we focused on today. We didn't worry about what we couldn't deal with or what we couldn't address. Our time was limited. And one of my favorite memories of her, and I can especially when it snows, I can see it is it had snowed. Now, since she's got cancer, she like my dad <clears throat> didn't do temperature. Well, but I said, come on, let's walk around the block. And it was beautiful. No one had been out. It's crestfallen snow everywhere. She's wearing her red pea coat. Peacock, peacock jacket and we stopped and I looked into her beautiful brown eyes and told her how much I loved her and kissed her and she had the most beautiful smile you can think of because I could tell little glint in her eyes that she was happy again and she had told me she hadn't been happy in a long time. And then when we turned that corner, walking back to the house, we met that North wind and she was like, Oh God, get me home now. And I said, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. But those were the things that we lived for. We lived each day at a time. So if you get that diagnosis, you've got cancer, you 
have two choices. You can, well, you've got more than that. You can ignore it. You can get depressed. You can become introverted and close everybody off. Or you can let them in and help you. And then live each day and enjoy each day. And that's what I did with Larry, Dad, and Debbie. We lived each day. And that's all I've really got to say about that. So as I wrap this up, if you like the content, what the hell is wrong with my camera? Well, that got goofy. Okay. Um, on my archives, on BBS, they are they're being monetized, and I believe it starts at $1.99, and you can contribute as much as you want to to go back in and pull up past episodes. I have a Jeff Dawson at Patreon. I also have a GoFundMe because it does cost money to do this stuff and all contributions are appreciated because it's been a rough year in construction and you know, why lie? Funds are getting low. So any and all help is appreciated. Like I said, you can go to my blog at LDDJEnterprises.com to see books that I'm working on, which I've got four that I really haven't done anything with, but I need to get off my dead ass and start cranking out the fourth one in the Vampire versus Third Reich series and the other three. Uh, we'll, we'll see how those go. Oh. Uh, and I think, is there anything else? Oh, yeah, all my books are on Amazon. Jeff Dawson. And as I said earlier, you know, I've got three on dealing with cancer. And I really do like Do Your Jam, Damn Job, because as I mentioned that earlier, I clear away the BS that we see in management technique books. And I've read like half a dozen in the last year or so. And only one of them really gets down to here's how you address the problem. Well, most of those books are two to 300 pages long. By the time you're finished reading, it's like, well, well, that was exciting. Now what? Mine's a third of that. And I just use the experiences that I learned in the construction industry and addressed. We just get right into it. I tell you the problems, whether it was dealing with owners, clients, employees, managers, all the problems that go in between, we just get into it. We just jump right in. I give you the situation like holding meetings. You want to be in a meeting for two hours and walk out not knowing anything. Or you want to be in a meeting for 15 minutes and walk out of there going, now we know how to address the problem. And I offer seminars on that. I'll come and give speeches, I'll talk to your managers, your employees, 
because when it's all said and done, what we really want, we want results. We want people to show up on work on time. We want them to do their damn job. That's what it really comes down to, isn't it? Anything else, as Ike said, I'm only worried about gold and green. Everything else is a waste. And I've seen plenty of that in companies I've worked with, I've worked for, I've owned. We all want one thing. We want results. Now, how are we going to get them? And even as a baseball coach, in my baseball manuals, I do the same thing. <clears throat> you know, as I said earlier, let's put the fun back in fundamentals and maybe you all will learn the game. So I just break things down in the most simplistic form and let you go from there. And that's all I've got for this Saturday afternoon from Dallas, Texas. You all have a great weekend, and I will see you in two weeks. I hope you enjoyed our time together. I know I did. Without you wonderful listeners, this show would not be possible. If you want to know more about me and how my brain works, that's a scary thought. Check out my books at jeffdawsononamazon.com, websites, LDDJ Enterprises, and jeffdawsonauthor.site for upcoming releases and teaser excerpts from past and present publications. You can also contact me at Facebook, LDDJ Enterprises Publishing, or email LDDJEnterprises at gmail.com or on Twitter at JeffDawson59. Have a great week and look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Dawson's Domain.